As the world heads into uncharted territory, business leaders are seeking perspective. The What Now, What Next podcast series features KPMG advisors addressing the issues that are of most concern now and in the near future. Today, I'd like to introduce Matt Giordano, John Capone, and Martin McKeever. They'll spend some time talking with us about regulatory development for mutual funds resulting from COVID-19. As we begin, would the three of you introduce yourselves to our listeners? Sure thing. Hi, Stacey. This is John Capone. I'm an audit partner in Boston. I'm originally a Philly guy, so I'm not quite sure what accent you're going to hear today, but uh, you'll probably hear a little bit of both. Thanks for having me. Hi, Stacey. This is Matt Giordano. I'm also an audit partner out of Boston. And in my prior life, I spent five years at the SEC where I was a chief accountant in the Division of Investment Management. So I'll be spending some time today talking about the regulatory side. Hello, everyone. This is Mark McKeever. I'm also a Philly guy out of the Philadelphia office. I'm a director in the advisory practice focusing on operational and regulatory requirements within the asset wealth management space. I was also with the Securities and Exchange Commission as a senior compliance examiner with OC. Excellent. Well, thank you all for being here today. I appreciate you making the time to share with our listeners, especially during such a busy time. The world has changed dramatically in the last weeks and months. If you look at where the equity market was at the end of 2019 and where we are today, the pace of change is astounding. This podcast will offer an overview of the regulatory developments applicable to registered 1940 Act funds as a result of COVID-19. And we're going to review what fund managers should be thinking about from a regulatory board and CCO, CIO perspective. So I'd like to start today's podcast by asking, what are you seeing in the market in regard to regulatory development? I'm curious if you can share your perspective, perhaps by providing a bit of background about where we were and where we are now. John, could we start with you? You know, as you mentioned, what's happened in the markets in 2019, if you step back and think about the global macro trends that happened just in the last year, you were watching a shift from actively managed portfolios and money flows going to passive investments. So away from the active portfolio management to the ETF platform. And you saw equity surge in 2019, returns that were uh, north of 30%. And of course, money follows the returns. And then when we see COVID hit and you see this dramatic shift as people flee to save for asset classes, and that obviously puts stress on money managers in reaction to that, how do you ensure you have the proper liquidity to handle redemption requests at such a high rate? How are money market funds positioned to take in additional monies, but also be able to redeem those shareholders that need some of the liquidity? And how do you respond to that? When you have equity markets so strong and managers chasing alpha, Many times you would see a trend where the portfolios would get into maybe more aggressive asset classes. And then when you have an event like COVID and you have the health pandemic, then liquidity becomes a big challenge. And we'll talk a lot about how they're intertwined, liquidity, valuation, redemption requests, and certainly how regulators have reacted to that. Similar in some respect to what happened way back in 2009. 
Good insight. So let's pivot a little bit toward people. Can your team walk us through how various stakeholders are responding during this time? And perhaps since this is such a big topic, I'm curious to know about the responses your team is seeing from multiple perspectives. Let's start with you, Matt. What are you seeing and hearing from regulators? The regulators have been really active during this time. And I'll start out by saying I was impressed by how quickly the SEC chair, Jay Clayton, and the commissioners responded to this crisis and granted certain relief and also how the SEC staff issued a number of no-action letters. I thought at a high level it was quick, it was thoughtful, the relief really didn't loosen shareholder protections. There may have been some modifications to certain rules, but the Commission really did a great job at finding that balance and implementing the guardrails to protect investors, but also to allow management and the capital markets to work in this new environment and work on these certain time delays. And I would start off by saying, most notably, the commission issued two orders in the middle of March around uh, board meetings and other forms that are required by the SEC. The first, in regards to board meetings, the commission granted temporary relief to the boards for investment companies and business development companies from some of the in-person voting requirement rules. And this is around approvals and renewals around contracts or the 15C process the approval of accountants, interim advisory agreements, and also distribution plans. And when I was on the staff, this was a big area that nobody wanted to change. It was an area that we talked about permitting some change, but the in-person meetings were really found to be necessary. So in this sort of time, I think it's important that the SEC was able to adapt and allow boards to have these virtual meetings. When it comes to the forms, the SEC also granted temporary relief around form NSEN and NPORT. They granted a 45-day period that investment companies and UITs that are unable to file these forms timely can use. Also, the SEC granted a 45-day temporary relief period to investment advisors that were prevented from filing timely their forms ADV and forms PF. They also granted a 45-day relief period for register funds who were unable to prepare or transmit annual or semi-annual reports, I think was good. We haven't seen a lot of people relying on this relief yet, but it's out there for those that would have to. And then there's also relief around the delivery of the prospectus. And this is a little more nuanced and tricky. There's 45-day relief. It's available for current investors only and not for prospective or new investors. So if you have a prospective or new investor, you can't rely on that 45-day relief. So I would encourage folks to discuss with their counsel any business issues or prospective business issues about relying on this relief before you use it. A couple practice points I wanted to note, too, is that the SEC didn't grant relief around N-Liquid, form N-Liquid. So to John's point earlier, this is an area of concern for liquidity, and the SEC wants to know if there are liquidity problems in your fund. Also, there has not been relief around form NCR or NMFP. We've also had a number of conversations with the SEC and SEC staff around financial statements, and most notably the areas that we're hearing our clients talk about or we're discussing with the SEC is around subsequent event disclosure, around valuation and dislocated markets, and also around 
asset coverage for those closed-end funds or business development companies. And we were really happy to see the relief that was granted just last week in regards to the asset coverage test and the asset coverage ratios. Although the order and being able to rely on that relief, there are some steep stipulations. We're happy to see that there is relief out there. We've heard so much about the value of organizations being able to quickly adapt during this time, and it sounds as if you can attest to that. So, John, let's bring you in, and can we hear from you about what you're seeing as it relates to boards during this time? When I speak with a number of directors, what's been clear over the last few weeks is boards have a responsibility to make sure the fund's operating in accordance with 40 Act requirements. And when you have an environment like this, the number one thing that's out front and center is liquidity. And I hear from these directors talk about, let's make sure that we're getting information about liquidity. Do we have to think about backstopping a fund with a line of credit? Do we look through to certain prime money funds where the Fed's opened up a window or an affiliate might step in to make some support arrangements. They're asking the questions to management that I think are aligned completely with the responsibility of ensuring that the products that they stand behind enable shareholders to move in and out quickly and that they're monitoring their responsibility as oversight. And when we talk, we talk a lot about what kind of information are you getting? Let's talk a little bit about the evolution. It's gone past the how are operations working remotely to now, yes, we're working remotely and things are operating appropriately, but now it's more about information. Okay, how do we plan for times when we'll need to make sure the fund has adequate safeguards in place to honor redemption requests? How are we looking through to the valuation of certain holdings that might reside in certain funds? And how are we reacting to and planning for situations that test some of the liquidity requirements or the fund's ability to move in and out of asset class plans in place if we have to pull those levers? So those are the things I think that they're looking at, quite honestly, as we have many mutual fund cycles are nearly every month. And as you go through monthly year ends, what kind of disclosures do we think is appropriate? And what can we say? These are times where we certainly don't see the end line, but we want to ensure we provide full and fair disclosure to shareholders. Mark, could you help frame the responses of CCOs and CIOs for us? What I see in, in discussing with some of our clients and CCOs, the key risks around the response to the markets because of COVID is really in a few different areas. One is which John and Matt had talked about is liquidity, monitoring the fund's liquidity buckets. Over the past two years, there's the new liquidity risk management rule that requires funds to categorize the relative liquidity of their assets in four different buckets. Also with that is it gives the latitude of the advisors to define what is in each of those liquidity buckets. So what a CCO needs to be plugged into and monitoring as the portfolio management teams react to the redemption activity and the market activity and the market movements is how they're defining their liquidity buckets and those assumptions and how they're made and how they're monitored within the systems and to be able to react to whether a particular fund can handle 
the level of redemptions. And it's really around conduct risk, where there's a lot of pressure on the portfolio managers to protect the assets, but also to sustain the fund. And so they're torn between making sure that there's adequate liquidity at the same time, keeping up the performance numbers to prevent a run on the fund. So things like monitoring liquidity, having a dashboard that monitors the liquidity, looks at the valuation process and the valuation assumptions and the oversight over valuations, as well as activities of the investment committees, making sure that the CCO is plugged in to the investment processes and the changes in the investment process. You may have situations where a particular fund has a certain investment objective, but because of the vast movements in the market activities in response to COVID, there could be protective measures that are being made at the top by the chief investment officer and providing some guidance to each of the funds. So now it's making sure that, okay, have these protective measures, are they being monitored? And so these are the factors that a CCO needs to be plugged into, needs to make sure that there's a surveillance process over that, whether it's within the compliance area, operations, or the mid office or front office, that there's surveillance and oversight and governance over the dynamics that are happening with the portfolios and the ability for these funds to meet their liquidity needs at the same time, not harming the investors by undergoing undue risk in valuations and investment decisions. So, Mark, one thing that I want to add there is that when we're talking to our clients, there still is not a slowdown on the number of exams that we're seeing come out of OC. So even though we're still in this COVID-19 time period and a lot of folks are working from home, OC is still out there and inspecting the books and records of the investment advisor and the funds. And these are some real key considerations. And Items around valuation are certainly an area where we see a number of folks get deficiency letters. So it's really more important than ever to focus on some of these rules and risks. And it's important that the CCO stay focused on these as well. And that's a good point, Matt, because when you think about it from a post-COVID environment, is when the SEC comes in and evaluates how the funds behaved and reacted during that crisis and how they adhere to their own internal policies as well as the regulatory requirements around liquidity. So I think funds and CCOs need to be mindful of making sure that you follow a disciplined approach, making sure you have audit trails and surveillance and controls in place that you can provide evidence that any changes in your investment policies and valuation assumptions Liquidity assumptions are well documented and you have rationales for them that are fair, equitable, and in the best interest of the fund shareholders. You know, when the regulators come and examine your books and records to see how you handled the situation, that you folks are in good shape. Thank you for sharing your perspectives of what stakeholder response looks like during this important and critical time. We're at a place now in our podcast where we like to lean in and discuss outcomes, and we can get as practical as you like. So what does regulatory reporting look like in the era of COVID-19, and how should organizations be interacting with shareholders and with the public? Let's start with you, Mark. When I think about the outcomes to this current environment with respect to regulatory reporting, so the SEC has provided relief, extending various different deadlines on what I would say the meat and potato type 
reporting requirements like Form ADV, Form NPORT, Form NSEN. But as Matt had mentioned previously, there haven't been extensions on certain critical type reporting like Form N Liquid. It requires very timely filing so the SEC can understand and have insight into what funds are struggling with their liquidity needs. So this is something that's a challenge to complexes, to the compliance and regulatory reporting functions within those firms to ensure that they have the systems in place, they have the monitoring mechanisms in place to react timely to this, and also not arbitrarily moving the needle on what's considered a highly liquid instrument to avoid filing when you need to file when you don't meet the certain thresholds for form and liquid. That's what I think is the critical thing with respect to regulatory reporting. The next thing as far as communication to investors, I think it's never more important than now to keep your investors informed about major changes on the website with respect to especially money market funds. As funds liquidity needs are heightened, that there's proper education and the requisite heads up warnings to investors as to what's happening with the funds and how investors can facilitate their redemptions as needed. And one more thing that I would add there is from a regulatory standpoint, I think that the SEC will continue to be open to providing the relief where necessary. And also there may be a potential to continue that relief on for longer and change some of the requirements. There's been certain commissioners who said that they don't want additional rulemaking during this period. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I would certainly make sure you're following the regulatory updates as it's fast moving and fluid situation. As we come to the end of our time together, one of the most important questions we ask on this series of COVID podcasts is whether you have tips for our listeners. Now, we understand that this situation is evolving quickly and that tips you give today might be different in the days and weeks ahead. Keeping that in mind, how can organizations create a culture of readiness and resilience for the future? John, perhaps we could start with you on this question. Yeah, and i like to take it a direction of readiness for the future, and I'd like to look at it through the lens of the director. I said earlier that the director's responsibility is founded on oversight. And some of the things I think as you think forward would be you can't ignore market conditions over valuation. And one of the things that we're always challenged with regulators is that they have the benefit of hindsight. And as a directors fulfill their fiduciary duty and, and they question valuation, I'm going to put a shameless plug in for a KPMG paper that just came out on valuation. I think it's gathering that knowledge to think through valuation across broad spectrums of investments held by all kinds of funds, whether it's prime or government money market funds, or whether it's other funds that may hold private equity, real estate, specialty finance, lower rated debt, which run the gamut between equity and fixed income funds you know, valuation presents an ongoing challenge and boards need to make sure that in fulfilling that oversight responsibility that they do have an open dialogue with management, with PMs, with third parties like auditors to share insights and talk about when you see market conditions, right, or you see inputs that 
could be used to come up with matrix pricing, fixed income securities. Where are those inputs coming from? How are they vetted? How reliable are they? Those would be the ideas, questions, comments I would want to leave with directors as they think through where we're headed and to be ready for. I think right now is a great time to really reevaluate your risk disclosure and ensure that the risks that are being presented are accurate and that they're robust. Another area for tips is around subsequent events. So I think for those funds, you know, the effects of COVID-19 has happened after the date of the financial statements, really understanding from a sub-event standpoint of what should be disclosed. If we filed in liquid, do we have to include that? And I think the staff has come out in the discussions that we've heard is that it's a talking point. It's not a point that you have to disclose. So you may have filed in liquid, but it doesn't mean you have to disclose the fact that you filed in liquid, right? That's a private document. But if there are other gates that are put up or suspension of redemptions, those are other areas that should be disclosed if it happened after the date of the financial statements. Also, John, you mentioned valuation. Where we see people get in trouble with valuation is areas where you have hard-to-value securities and you start to justify why your value is where it is and it's not where your model says it should be. So when you think about fair value, just continuously think about what is that exit price and what could I get if I sold it today? And don't think that this is just pure dislocation in the market. As far as tips related to the compliance function during the COVID-19 response and impact from the markets due to that, I would say that And this is something that could benefit them on a go-forward basis as well, is evaluate your governance structure and how plugged-in compliance is to that and what key risk indicators are provided in these governance meetings, such as the Valuation Committee, liquidity Risk, and Risk Management Committees and Investment Committees. Is compliance adequately plugged in? There are adequate key risk indicators that would monitor these activities, especially during stressful periods like this, as to where the needle is moving back and forth at more extreme levels and what remediation and mitigation activities are so the compliance officers can take the right action as to, okay, certain decisions are being made at the governance level to mitigate certain risks that are happening. So let's see how this is followed through with and what type of metrics do I need to gain comfort that these are being adhered to and remediated as they are discussed at the senior management level. Well, Matt, John, and Mark, thank you so much for being here today. I know the three of you are incredibly busy during this time, and I'm grateful that you made the time to share your insight into what fund managers should be thinking about. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We'll look forward to bringing you other insights from our KPMG advisors in the next edition of What Now, What Next? In the meantime, you can check out the other podcasts in our series at visit.kpmg.us slash COVID-19. Thank you. The world has changed dramatically in the last weeks and months. If you look at where the equity market was at the end of 2019 and where we are today, the pace of change is astounding. This podcast will offer an overview of the regulatory developments applicable to registered 1940 Act funds, 
as a result of COVID-19. And we're going to review what fund managers should be thinking about from a regulatory board and CCO, CIO perspective. All right, I think we got it. Thank you for that. I was doing the math and thinking, well, maybe there is a wormhole that is changing, oh, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, but that's perfect. All right. Great. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. much for your time. I appreciate Bye. it.